thank you for the opportunity to try to speak to you. Please pray that what I have on my mind would be useful to at least some of the Lord's people. And uh, most of all, though, would be glorifying to God. It has been good to be back at Providence. Brother Mark is not a mean dude, uh, regardless of what some offenders might say, I suspect. <laughs> and so his reminders that it has been a while since I was at Providence have been subtle, uh, but I have heard of Brother Mark, and I'm thankful to, to get to be here and, and be able to worship with you. I want to start off just by grabbing a verse that's found over in the fourth chapter of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10 says, For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. With those seven they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Don't get excited, Brother Mark. I don't know enough about the seven eyes of the Lord to make any intelligent comments there. I'll leave that for, for Brother James. But there was a question that that verse opened with. Who hath despised the day of small things? And the honest answer is most of us. Yeah. Just, just to be real blunt about it. Our natural tendency is to despise small things. When you read the Bible, recognize that the word despised as it's used in the scriptures it's not used in the way that we generally tend to use it in our language today uh, normally if, if today we say that we despise something we're talking about an intense dislike in the word of god i don't know really that i've found it it may be the case that there's a place where it means that but i've not i've not found it and, and at least can't find it in my memory uh, what it seems to almost always mean is to consider to be of little or no value. It's not an intense just dislike. It's just, just consider it not worth much. And we have a tendency to despise small things. And we have a tendency to, to get in our minds, not necessarily in a way of consciously thinking of it in this way, but more so just the, the, the desire that there would be something bigger. Or a desire that there would be something more. And we find that in every arena of life. Where we'll look at it and say, well, this just seems to be so pointless. Or this just seems to be so useless. Or what I'm involved in just really isn't of all that much importance at all. And I will tell you that when we do that, we're going to have to raise our hand to the question here of who shall despise the day of small things and say, apparently it's me. Because it's easy for us to do. Amen. You know, you go over to the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew. And you see the commendation that Jesus Christ gives to the sheep. And what he has to say to them is somewhat shocking for them to hear. And Christ begins to list the things 
that their lives have been engaged in, that have uh, identified the, the characteristics. And he says that you, you baptized a thousand people and you engaged in tremendous debates that, that uh, caused people to, uh, to just be able to see the truth in a way that they had never seen it before. And you, uh, you engaged in, in uh, pr- providing homes for 10,000 people that had uh, previously been living on the... Is that what it says, Brother Philip? Or is my, my memory slightly off? <laughs> I don't think that's what it said, was it? What did he say? He says in regards to what they had done to him, because they had done it to one of the uh, the least of his brethren, he said, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was hungry and you fed me a meal. I was naked. I didn't have enough clothing and you gave me a coat. I didn't have a place to sleep and you came and you took me in. There's an individualistic effort of small things there. Who has despised the day of small things? You know, a, a lot of times I'll see uh, young mothers who just who, who who will feel like, what am I am I doing in this this what feels like day after day drudgery or activity? Or someone who's going to a job and putting in a, a decade after decade of just faithful labors in that regard. I'll tell you what you're doing. You're being faithful to God. You know, that, that, little, that little child of, of God that you hold in your hands is often quite literally naked and you clothe them. I read in one place that in the earlier part of the of the last century, there was a lady in England who, as a reminder to herself, put a sign in her kitchen, and this is what it said: "Divine service held here three times daily." It was a good reminder to her because she recognized in the things that she was doing to serve her family. Ultimately, she was serving her God. You know, sometimes, most of the time, what God calls us to be faithful in are small things. Amen. Are things that are little things. Are things that most, most of the time, no one else is going to notice. I recall over in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, we find a man that, again, to the best of my memory, we only see one time in Scripture. He appears on the scene just for a moment, a man named Ananias. Uh, Paul remembers his name again one other time. He was important to Paul. But in terms of the, of the record of the church, the, 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 the record of Ananias is a, little, is a small thing. It's a little small thing. Because God tells Ananias, I want you to go uh, to the house of Simon on a street called Straight, and I want you to find there a man named Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayed. Ananias had one job to do. You have to wonder, as Paul, as Saul, as he was known then, was there at that time, you know, you know what it was like inside the Apostle Paul right then? He saw himself as hellbound and condemned. And we know that 
um, from Romans chapter 7. I, I like to jokingly say we get a record there of the time Paul was wrong. You know, because of what he was feeling was contrary to the reality of what it was. But what he felt like, he said, sin revived and I died. And if you'll allow me a little bit of assumption for a second, I think the Apostle Paul probably felt that the last thing anyone is ever going to want to call me again is brother. And here comes this preacher that's God's given a message to give to one man. One man. Amen. And he comes in and says, Brother Saul. That's a small thing, isn't it? Of what value was Ananias' labor with the Apostle Paul to then go on to be to the Gentile church? You think the Apostle Paul was of some use to us today? Amen. Let me tell you something. Because there had been a brother that said, Brother Saul. And talked to him about what God had given him to give to Brother Saul, despise not the day of small things. One of the records that we have in the Bible over in the uh, book of Exodus, if you want to turn there with me quickly for a moment, and I don't intend to be uh, overly lengthy this morning, Brother James. In the second chapter of the book of Numbers, you find a particular order that is given for the way that the tribes of Israel were to move. You know, one of the things that we need to recognize is God is a God of order. Alright? God is not a God who anywhere in the Bible we see God giving individuals something to do and then just says, shotgun it. You know, just kind of just, just, you know, you just, just to do it however you want to do it. Where in the Bible do we ever find that? Nowhere. Every time we see God engage with the people or institution, God is very careful to tell them what He wants to do. Listen, the same thing applies to the church of God. You know, just, just because we're 2,000 years removed from when the Lord set up the church is not uh, meaning that God didn't set it up exactly like He intended for it to be, for it to be exactly formulated for the glory of God and the benefit of the regenerated souls of children of God. He set it up to be used in that way, and He set it up exactly like He intended for it to be used in that way. Well, when it came to the people of Israel, there's no difference. There's no difference at all. God... He even gave them an order in the way they were to march. And said, this one come first, and then this one, and then here's where the Levites are going to be, et cetera, et cetera. But then look at what he says. You know, somebody has always got to be last. You know, most of the time, we don't like being last. Small things, Brother Mark. We don't want to be last. Who wants to be the last kid picked whenever they're... You know, whenever there's going to be some kind of a game out on the out on the playground, nobody wants to be the last kid picked. But you know what? You can't start the game until the last kid's been picked. Somebody's got to be the last person picked, right. so the, so the game can start, so everybody else can enjoy. When Israel marched, somebody had to be last, and God said exactly who that somebody was going to be. 
It says all um, in verse. I'm in Numbers chapter two. Let's go into verse uh, twenty nine. He says Naphtali and all his host, etc. And then verse thirty one. All they that were numbered in the camp of Dan were a hundred thousand and fifty and seven thousand and six hundred. They shall go hindmost with their standards. God says when they march, Dan's going to be at the end. And you say. What's well, an inglorious position for Dan, isn't it? You know, Dan had an important job to do. If something got dropped along the way, guess who was the last option to find it? If there was an heirloom, if there was a treasure that fell somewhat, somewhere out of the luggage of the tribe of Judah, you know who the last defense was to make sure that it didn't get left in the dust. It was Dan. Dan were the, was the ones who can say, well, this got stepped on and this got dropped, but it's a treasure. We're not going to leave it here in the wilderness because somebody up there is going to realize that they're missing it. I tell you, friends, sometimes the people of God discover there's a tremendous value to those that say, hold on, you dropped something for a second there. Hold on, there's something that you stepped on that you shouldn't have that should have been a prized possession up by the league, folks. You know what else they did? Guess who it was that was able to come on and be able to take care of the folks that were straggling and the folks that got tired? It was Dan. It was Dan. You know, and, and you don't appreciate Dan until you're the one that got tired. And everybody else just kept on marching. Then all of a sudden you see the host of Dan. And the host of Dan is able to say, we got to help you. Because there's nobody else behind us. We've got to just pick you up. We'll let you ride on the camel for a while. There's a, there's a tremendous value to the people of God, to those that go hindmost who might be considered little, who might think of themselves, well, I've got nothing important to do in the house of God. I've got nothing important to do in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ said that handing a cup of cold water was important to do. Amen. There is a job to be done by everyone. The eyes can't say of the hands or the feet, I have no need of you, and vice versa. If there were no feet, where's the walking going to happen, he says. Where's the walking going to happen? Now, <clears throat> despise not the day, or who has despised, and the inference there, don't despise the day of small things. Because the things that God gives us to do in His service, and whether that be in the service of the church, whether that be in the service of, of the people of God that are simply contained in the four walls of our home, there is a divine approval of the importance of small things. And I'm about to prove that to you. If Matthew 25 was not proof enough. And I'm going to try to catch here on a little tendril of, of one of the things that Brother Philip preached to us uh, to start the meeting. Go with me if you would over into the, uh, over into the book of Matthew. 
very early on in the book, Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, we get language regarding the baptism of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to start reading in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus, and Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Now look at verse 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Present tense. Been a lot different if that verse had said, in whom I'm going to be well pleased. Right. There was a work that was in front of Christ. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of my Father and to finish His work. He said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will. And He said, but the will of Him that sent me, and this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. That, that Christ had that mission, that obligation, that covenant, that purpose to fulfill, but He hadn't done it yet. Alright? Christ had not gone to Calvary yet. In fact, Christ hadn't performed a miracle yet. Cana of Galilee hadn't happened yet. Alright? And God the Father speaks from heaven and, and doesn't say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am going to be well pleased. Right. He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Amen. Historical tradition would tell us that Christ is about 30 years old at this point. Can't prove that, but Mark, don't, don't ask me to. But but that is generally accepted that he was roughly about thirty. And God says, "I am well pleased." What had he been doing? You know, the world and most of Christianity would probably say nothing for thirty years. Hadn't been working miracle. We know when the first miracle happened. It's after this. You can go to John and figure that out in the timeline. He's not been leading disciples. What, what, what had he been doing? He had been perfectly keeping the law of God. Amen. Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to speak very plainly, and I do not want to be misunderstood. There is a difference between owned and innate righteousness and displayed righteousness. Okay? Amen. Jesus Christ, by virtue that he was God, had, has, I don't know the right word to use there, is, would be even a better way to say it, I guess. The owned and innate and personal righteousness of God. But Christ went beyond that. 
And the Son of God, in whom he was well pleased, had spent the last 30 years quietly, perfectly serving God. Now, it was impossible that he could do otherwise. The Bible says of Christ, it says over in the 7th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says he's holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Now, I have a dog, a German shepherd that I love, and she loves me as long as I've got cheese. And she's six and a half years old, and she's never bitten anyone. But if somebody said, is she harmless? I would say, she's a dog, and she has teeth. You know, technically, just because she hasn't done it, break in the house. We'll find out, you know. (laughs) Just because she hasn't done it doesn't mean that she's harmless. Christ was harmless. It was just as impossible for him to sin as it was impossible that he not be God. The two are inseparable. All right? They're inseparable. But Christ spent 30 years quietly, faithfully, consistently keeping the law. And doing everything that he was to do, which included obedience to his parents, and as the Bible says, being subject to them. You know what you know, I just discovered there? What we just discovered there? That's service to God. And something in which he is well pleased. 30 years. You know what else he was doing in those 30 years? The Bible tells us over in the third or fourth chapter of the book of Luke that he went into the synagogue, but then it has a particular phrase after that. As his custom was, I'll submit to you that God's law, that Christ as a Jew was living under said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I'll stand here and be willing to say Christ was in the Jewish church, and church is the right word, because it's the word the Bible uses in the book of Hebrews. It was the Jewish church. He was there every Sabbath day. It was his custom. And we say, oh, that's that's good. I'm glad he did that. No, wait a second. You're missing the point here. He was going to a dead church. And not a dead church that, well, there's hope of revival at some point. A dead church that he knew he was about to close up and bring in the time of the New Testament church. But where was he every single week? He was there in the house of God. Now listen. If the Lord of glory can be faithful in a scenario whenever he knows it's dead and he's about to close it up completely, you and I can be faithful to the church of the living God even when we might be tempted to say, well, you know, I just don't enjoy the old Baptists anymore. I just feel like it's, it's uh, going downhill or this, that, and the other. They don't have this or that and the other that'll, that'll keep my, my kids in, in, engaged. Let me tell you something, friends. God has designed His church the way God wants it to be. And His command to us is to follow what His Son did and to be faithful. Amen. And to be faithful. 
This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You know, the brethren preached to us about the resurrection last night. And the Apostle Paul there in that 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, as he finishes the statement there on the resurrection, do you know what he, you know what he closes it with? He closes it with duty. He says, therefore, which means based on all of the glorious theology of the resurrection. Amen. Because sometimes when we get to despising the day of small things or the small things that God has called us to be faithful in, we start saying, ultimately, what's the point? Does it, does it really matter? And the Apostle Paul says, because of the resurrection, it matters. Amen. It matters in whatever role God has called us to in our homes and in the church. Whether he tells us to be part of the uh, the eyes of the body. Or whether he tells us to be part of the foot of the body. Whether he tells us to be whatever tribe is supposed to go first. Or whether he tells us to be Dan. It matters. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. He said, but Adam, but that's my point. I want to be involved in the work of the Lord. Then just do the things that He's given you to do in your life. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why, Paul? Because based on the truth of the resurrection, child of God, you need to know, he says, that your labor is not pointless. It's not worthless. It's not unneeded. It may not have a spotlight on it, but your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And whether God has called you as a mother or a father, as a daughter or a son, as a pastor or the person who always leaves last to make sure the doors are locked up and the ACs turned to the right spot. Know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Christ spent 30 years in obscurity sweeping up sawdust for Joseph and attending the Sabbath services of the Jewish church and God said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I love you and I hope that's going to